Hello, I'm Bob Wessels and I'm from the Netherlands. In this podcast, I will be telling you unexpected stories about Rembrandt, the famous Dutch painter. Compelling and fascinating stories. Hardly about art, no, about his almost unknown life as an entrepreneur. About Rembrandt's business, his finances and his legal affairs. His troubled life in good days and in dark periods, may offer you a new and different perspective on Rembrandt, the most famous artist in 17th century Holland. In 2024, I am planning 24 podcast episodes. Every episode is between 15 and 25 minutes, and all for free. Welcome, or welcome back again. In this episode, we will explore the story of Rembrandt's signatures under his artwork. Yes, you heard me right, Rembrandt's signatures. How he signed his paintings and drawings and documents. What letters he used, what style he chose, and what changes he made over time. You might think... That's a rather dull topic, but trust me, it's a fascinating way to trace Rembrandt's artistic development, his self-confidence, his self-image, and his desire to build a high-class reputation. It's also a way to understand how he wanted to be seen by his contemporaries and, I guess, by later generations. So... Let's dive into this surprising and intriguing story of Rembrandt's signatures and see what they can tell us about the man behind all these masterpieces. First of all, what is a signature? Is it important? I think it is as it is a way to identify a person and express their agreement or approval. Signing a document confirms your identity and you agree to its contents. It's a legal statement with consequences for your rights and obligations, now and in the future. And in Rembrandt's case, to this day and who knows how long after that. A signature can take different forms your full name, your initials, a symbol or a mark, written by hand, electronically, or in many more ways than was possible some 400 years ago. But the essential aspects remain the same as they were then. It must be recognizable, unique and consistent. As you know, your signature is often required to apply to buy online or after receiving a package. A signature is a way to prove your identity and your intent, or, if you were Rembrandt in the 17th century, proof of the unique authorship of a work of art and its authentic creation. Okay, that's all fine, but 
What if you can't write your name? What if you are illiterate or don't know a fixed spelling for your name? Then you can use a simple sign or a mark, such as a cross or an X. A very old custom from ancient times in which quite a number of people were illiterate. Here is an example of Rembrandt's partner, who lived with him for many years since the mid-1640s, Hendrikje Stoffels. Her will of 1661 is signed with a cross, and the notary wrote next to it, I quote, this sign, a plus sign, made by Testatrix Hendrikke Stoffels. End of quote. So instead of signing something with a name, she used a cross or a plus sign, most probably because Hendrikje was illiterate. But what about signing a work of art? For an artist, I think signing a work of art is a way to claim ownership and authorship. It's a way of saying, this is my creation, this is my style, this is my vision. It is also a way to market yourself and gain attention for your work and recognition. Signing art is not as easy as signing a document. There are more factors to consider, such as size, location, readability and durability. The signature should not be too small, too hidden or too difficult to read, not too big, prominent or distracting. Make sure it is in harmony with the composition, with the colors and the mood of the work and it's made with materials that don't fade or deteriorate over time. To meet the expectations of a potential buyer, artists still draw in the bottom corner, left or right. After all, that is usually the place where a collector looks first. In the first 40 years of the 17th century, there was no guilt for painters in Leiden. However, there was one in Amsterdam. Regardless of whether Rembrandt was already a member of this guild in 1631, as far as I know, there were no regulations for signing a work of art. Rembrandt signed his works of art in many different ways. He was not a consistent or standard signer. He was a variable and creative signer. He experimented with different formats, styles and spellings. So what did Rembrandt do? He used letters or a combination of letters such as R, RL, RHL, RHL van Rijn, R van Rijn, and so on. In his early career, over a period of some six or seven years, Rembrandt often changed his signature. One could say that the kind of signature was depending on his artistic development and his self-image. 
or he simply may have forgotten how he did sign a previous work. Fortunately, the signature for Rembrandt's daily transactions has been preserved. Six of the few existing documents are receipts for internship fees for his pupil Isaac de Jouderville, written between May 1630 and November 1631. In all documents, Rembrandt spelled his name as Rembrandt, with only a T and without the D. Mind you, there was no standardized language at that time. Terms or names could be taken down in phonotype. So there was a lot of room for using different letters for one and the same term or name. Some names in the 17th century were Latinized. Rembrandt's discoverer, Constantijn Huygens, refers to Rembrandtio in his diary. You can see Rembrandt's signature on the image used for this podcast. It is unique for the use of the curly R. In the addendum to this podcast, on my website rembrandtsmoney.com, you can read more about the graphic design of his signature. I also show some seven examples. Therefore, I chose this curly R for the cover of my book, and the image that is used for the full series of this podcast on Rembrandt's money. When I was studying Rembrandt, I wondered why do painters change their signature like Rembrandt did. Van der Wetering explains that the young Rembrandt signed his work only with the monogram RH which stands for Rembrandtus Hermanii or Rembrandt Harmansson. So indeed the H does not stand for Holland, but for his father's name Harman, and Zoon means the son, son of Harman. So the signature was Rembrandt, the son of Harman. When he was 2021, he signed with RHL, and when he was 25, 26, with R.H.L. van Rijn. The L most presumably stands for Leidensis, which is Latin for from Leiden, the town where he was born. In 2019, Rembrandt's biographer, Onno Blom, declares the monogram as a tribute to Rembrandt's origin, to his father and his hometown. If so, the monogram expresses also his laden roots and surroundings. Was Rembrandt the only one who incorporated his hometown and his father's name into his initials? According to Jacqueline Coutré, none of his immediate colleagues' painters used the name Leidensis or Leiden. Coutré is now a curator at the Art Institute of Chicago. She notes that Rembrandt's use of this monogram coincides exactly with the period in which his paintings, drawings and prints circulated outside his native city of Leiden. Coutre is sure he wanted to spread his work beyond his hometown. In that case, Rembrandt used, with respect for the names of his father and his birth town, a unique set of initials also for successful marketing and sales. 
On the other hand, there is the idea that if he uses this letter combination in Amsterdam, it expresses that he is an outsider, that he has not yet been integrated into Amsterdam community, or perhaps even the fact that he doesn't want to break his ties with Leiden. Was he hatching his bets against uncertain prospects in Amsterdam, where fierce competition existed among painters? Then, in 1632, when he was 26, Rembrandt began to sign his works of art with just his first name. Till his death in 1669, he spelt and signed his name as Rembrandt, with the D and a T in it. This is quite a shift from a locally oriented letter combination to the full expression of your first name. One illustration of this are the paintings of Martin Solmans and Opium Coppet, bought jointly by the Netherlands and France in 2016. The painting of Martin is signed Rembrandt F1634, the F standing for Fecit, which means made or made it in Latin. Well, what's the reason for this change? Van de Wetering agrees with the idea that he used his first name to be the equal of the great Italian artists of the 15th and 16th centuries, like Tizian, Raphael, Caravaggio and Michelangelo. This was unheard at the time in the Netherlands until Rembrandt broke the unwritten rules. No idea where this young, ambitious Leiden entrepreneur came to know these new Italian signatures. Possibly his first teacher in Leiden, Jacob von Swanenburg, told him about it. From the age of 14 to the age of 17, Rembrandt was trained by von Swanenburg. He was the son of a painter and later mayor of Leiden. He was educated by his father but left for Italy at the age of 20, around 1591. There, in Naples, von Swanenburg married Margarita Cordona. Twenty years later, he returns to Leiden. In 1615, he starts his own studio, and his wife and children joined him in 1617. Van Swanenburg must have told Rembrandt about the expressive designation of a single name by these Italian painters. Jacqueline Coutre is certain that Rembrandt, as a true entrepreneur, consciously chose this new signature. Early visitors to Rembrandt's Leiden studio, such as the Amsterdam regent Huidekoper and the Utrecht lawyer Arnaud Boutchel, already used the name Rembrandt in their communications. Huidekoper called him Rembrandt and Huygens used Rembrandtio in his diary. Their visit confirms Rembrandt's growing reputation and the esteemed quality of his work as collected by art enthusiasts. When Rembrandt signed his paintings, he used only his first name. He didn't need a last name to identify himself. He was Rembrandt, and 
everyone knew who he was. He was a master of light or even a master of shadow, a painter of emotions, a storyteller of the human condition. He was confident, independent and self-assured. He wanted to be recognized, admired and rewarded for his work. The term branding does not appear in the contribution of Coutre in her 2019 book Leiden, circa 1630, Rembrandt emerges. On the other hand, in the same publication, Stephanie Dickey submits that the group portrayed the Amsterdam Guild of Surgeons is a bold advertisement of Rembrandt's skill and ambition. She refers to the famous anatomy lesson. She says Rembrandt embraced the ideal of the universal master proficient in all aspects of his craft. Professor Jochen Sander, who is the curator of the Städelmuseum in Frankfurt am Main in Germany, is very clear on this. Rembrandt took the decisive step as soon as he arrived in Amsterdam, I quote, to establish his brand by abandoning traditional forms of signature he had used earlier, end of quote. By using his first name in 1632, Rembrandt became a trademark. He followed a custom that was already being used by his patrons and admirers, such as Huydekoper and Huygens. By doing so, others submit that Rembrandt has become a brand name. The Germans say a Markenzeichen, the Dutch say a Handelsmerk or Handelsnaam, a trade name or a trademark. This view is expressed by several authors. Leaving aside here, though, that in present Dutch legislation, these terms have their own specific meaning. Rembrandt's decision to use his first name as his signature was not a casual one. It was a deliberate and strategic move to establish himself as a successful artist. He must have had a clear view of what he wanted to achieve and how he wanted to be remembered. He was not afraid to express his confidence, his independence, his self-assurance through his paintings. He wanted to be famous and he wanted to be rich. But was he really that confident? Was he really self-assured? Before ending this episode of the podcast, I want to share with you another interesting theory about Rembrandt's signature. Some schoolers suggest that he used different variations of his name, such as RHL, to indicate that he still maintained his studio in Leiden. Why would he do that? Perhaps he wanted to keep his options open in case things didn't work out in Amsterdam. Maybe he wanted to have a backup plan, a safety net, in case his fortunes would change. Rembrandt's main motives remain as dark as they are inscrutable. It is cool to claim that we are right and to capitalize on our own views of things, but we must stick to the facts. And they are simply unknown, with the exception of that one single mysterious signature, Rembrandt.
That's it for this time. Thank you for listening. Hope you enjoyed it. If you want to know more about this story, do go to my website, remembrancemoney.com. It is podcast addendum from birth name to brand fame. And if you are looking for even more details and sources, consult my book of 2021 with the title Rembrandt's Money, The Legal and Financial Life of an Artist Entrepreneur in 17th Century Holland. My podcasts and blogs throughout 2024 build further on my book. You are invited to subscribe. In the following episode of this podcast, I'll dive onto the role of Eulenburg. Eulenburg was a painter and an art dealer. Rembrandt worked at Eulenburg and Eulenburg provided him with work. What has been Eulenburg's role in Rembrandt's professional and private life? A notarial deed has been found in which Rembrandt provides Eulenburg with a loan of thousand guilders. How was this loan structured? Was it just a loan or did it reflect a joint venture between the two? Did Rembrandt become a member of the Amsterdam's St. Louis Guild and when? And what was, some three years later, the reason of leaving the Eulenburg Art Studio? Personal? Financial? Creative? Creative?